a glorious crowd. A glance at a glorious crowd. Have you ever been in a large crowd? Huge, enormous, massive crowd of people. I've been in some large crowds back in 1997 in Washington, D.C., on the National Mall, which goes from the reflecting pool in front of the Washington Capitol building all the way down to the Washington Monument. I was there for Stand of the Gap, Promise Keepers event, and attendance, depending on who you read, anywhere between 600,000 to 800,000 men were there. I remember that day. They held us back for getting on the metro because they were afraid the platform would give way. And you were so packed in there that you better not let them push you out the door in the wrong stop. You were stuck. It was a huge amount of people. As big as that crowd was, I cannot imagine the crowd that we see described in our text this morning. A crowd so large that John tells us it could not be counted couldn't be numbered. According to Guinness World Records, one of the largest crowds for an American football game was 105,121. Took place right down the road at Arlington, Texas on September the 20th of 2009. New York Giants were playing the Dallas Cowboys. Now, Arlington had that record, but in September the 10th, 2016 at the Battle of Bristol at Bristol Motor Speedway in Bristol, Virginia, the attendance was 156,990. And that's when Tennessee took on Virginia Tech. Now, the largest crowd ever gathered to watch a sporting event, not on TV, not on radio, but actually live, was over 12 million over a course of three days, and that was the Tour de France, the 2012 annual race of Tour de France. Just think for a moment. What's the largest crowd you've been to? Do you do well with crowds? Do you freak out around a lot of people? Sick and head, some of you. That's why we live out here, huh? All around the world, people gather in large crowds for many different reasons. However, I want to emphasize again, no matter what crowd you're talking about that's happened here on earth or will happen on earth, nothing will ever compare to the crowd we read about in the text. Close your eyes for a moment and try to envision this great multitude in heaven. People from every walk of life, culture, and nationality, so many that, once again, they could not be counted. And around that huge crowd, we see the angels, the elders, and the four living creatures join in. In verse 11, they fall on their faces before the throne and worship God. Can you imagine being in that midst of those people, everybody crying out before God? Now, Verses 1 through 8, we talked about last week, chronicle the sealing of 144,000 Jews, 12 tribes of Israel. But the remainder of the chapter focuses on those beyond the Jewish community. 
yet they are included as recipients of the grace of God. And the purpose is to catch a glimpse of eternal blessedness, this eternal blessedness, this glory. It reminds me of something that happened when Jesus walked the earth, the transfiguration. You read about that in Matthew chapter 17, Mark chapter 9, and Luke chapter 9. When Jesus was transformed, they saw him as he truly is. We're getting just a glance, just a glimpse of what's going on here. Look at verse 9. After these things, that took place beginning of the chapter, 1 through 8. After these things I looked, and behold, a great or vast multitude, which no one could count or number. And I love what the New Living Translation does here. Too great to count. Just so many people. In every direction that the eye could look, the crowd stretched as far as you could see. There is no end. Now, how many have been to Washington, D.C.? Anybody, anybody been to Washington? Have you stood at the reflecting pool and looked back towards the Washington Monument and imagined that pool? Oh, what's the loud, largest crowd you could think of? And here's this crowd, this multitude that could not be counted. It reminds me of some promises God made way back in Genesis to Abraham. For example, Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. He took him out, said, took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Perhaps this is some fulfillment of that prophecy that God was telling Abraham. How about Genesis chapter 32, verse 12? For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. Look at verse 9. Once again, from every nation and all the tribes and peoples and tongues or language. That is the Greek word glossua that is translated language in the book of Acts. Later it's translated tongues and I believe in, the, in uh, Paul's epistles. It's emphasizing the universality of the, the multitude. They are different from the Jews that are sealed earlier in the chapter. They're a tribal and linguistical diverse. It, ex, it indicates to us the extent to which the gospel has permeated the entire earth. There are going to be people there from all over the place. Look what they're doing in verse 9 again. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in right robes. The right robes. The imputed righteousness or holiness they received from Christ when they gave him their lives and declared him to be their Lord. Reminds me of Colossians chapter 1, verses 22 and following. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now let that sink in your head real good. Because of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, because of your confessed faith in him as the Son of God, as the only way, he's going to present you to the one who sits on the throne, blameless and beyond reproach and holy, because of the shed blood of the Lamb. Now that verse goes on with a conditional statement. If you indeed continue in the faith firmly established 
and steadfast and not move away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Stand fast. Can you imagine being able to stand before the one who sits on the throne? And look at the last person of verse 9. Palm branches were in their hands. Does that remind you of a scene anywhere in the Gospels? Remember when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and they're waving palm branches? And there's a Hosanna in the highest, blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a huge celebration going on. <laughs> Reminds me of uh, the Feast of the Tabernacles and Palm Sunday. They were waving those palm branches and declaring who he was. Wow. What a scene that John is painting for us so far. But look in verse 10. There they are, and he, he said they cry out, or a better translation, they were shouting with a loud voice. One translation says, a great war, saying. Before I go on, you ever been around a large crowd and everybody says something perfect and in unison, how loud that is? Going back to my illustration of Promise Keepers, a guy stood up, he said, at the count of three, I want you to just to shout out what's church affiliation, Church of Christ, Baptist, Presbyterian, whatever. One, two, three, and everybody, you know, he kind of all jumbled up. I heard Baptist, Presbyterian, Episcopal around me. But then he said this, on the count of three, I want you to shout out who you trust as your Lord and Savior. Didn't have to count. Perfect unison. Jesus Christ. And that echoed through the entire mall. Then there was a quiet hush. You know what happened after that? Yelling, screaming, and celebrating. They're crying out. What are they saying? Look at verse 10. Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, interesting, the Holman Christian Standard in the NIV puts the word in belong. Belongs to our God or the living comes from our God. See, salvation is not pro-offered or accomplished for God. He does it for us. Mankind, men, women, boys and girls. Because we desperately need salvation. And the word salvation in the Greek also has an idea of deliverance. See, it's more than just overcoming death and the grave and sickness and all that, but it's salvation, deliverance from every single sin and its dire consequences, all gone forever and ever and ever. Salvation is not property belonging to any human. We are recipients of it. The dispensing of it is holy and totally up to the sovereign God. No human work, effort, labor, toil is ever and will ever be sufficient. As we just sang, Jesus what? Jesus paid it all. And then we see in verse 11, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. They were joining in the worship. Redemption, the ultimate purpose of God and creation, has been realized. 
1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you make careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know that person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. They're joining in. And what are they saying? Look at verse 12. They're saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. They're saying amen to what that big crowd just said, salvation to our God. It's affirmation of what that great crowd has just said with a very loud voice. Of course, the glory is the radiance of God himself, wisdom, God's divine knowledge that he exhibited in his plan of redemption. Reminds me of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 and following. Listen to what Paul says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and bring to light which is the ministration of the mystery which for the ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and to the authorities in the heavenly places. The unfathomable riches of God. His wisdom now is being displayed through what? Through the church. Preaching is, in the Greek, means to proclaim publicly. It's like the old town choir going, hear ye, hear ye, says the king. That's my job. Hear ye, says the everlasting king. Thanksgiving, the appropriate response for salvation. Honor is the public acknowledgement both in words and deeds. And strength, speaking about his redemptive presence in the events of history. God Never walked away. God never gave up. Continues to work even to this day. Can you see that crowd? Oh my. People worshiping. Given everything they have. With loud voices. To honor and to worship. The one who sits on the throne. Verse 13. Then one of the elders answered saying to me. These who are clothed in white robes. Who are they? Where have they come from? Now the way that's worded is a little different for us in English. But basically it's an idiom because. The elders are anticipating John's question. Although John has never verbalized it. Of course, John's, supply, John's reply is, my Lord, you know. Now, my Lord does not necessarily imply deity, but only recognizes superiority, if I can say that word right. He says to John, 
These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Emphasis on the period of time distinguished from any other such tribulations. The exact period Jesus probably had in mind in Matthew chapter 24, verses 21 and 22. The awesome, the tremendous, the fearsome period of God's judgment. And yet, there are some who come out of the great tribulation. And look what it says. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Let me ask you a question. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Have you been made clean? My background reminds me of Exodus chapter 19. They were to wash their garments and be ready. Exodus chapter 19, verse 10 and following. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day. On the, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. <laughs> you remember what happened when he descended on Mount Sinai? The earth quaked and it trembled and they were all deeply terrified. Yeah, Moses, you go on up. We'll stay right here. Now I'm paraphrasing. You go right ahead. We'll stay right here. But for us, indeed, God has come down to us in the person and work of Christ. And this is talking about the cleansing effect of the blood of Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24 for Christ did not enter a holy place with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He didn't go into that tabernacle, into that temple, over the mercy seat. No, he walked right before God his Father and sprinkled his blood down for you. For you. And for every other man, woman, and child on this planet. We have 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. From every sin. See, the robes are white by virtue of the redemptive death of the Lamb. And the act of washing one's robes is not a, a meritorious work. It portrays faith. And one's ability to stand before God like they're doing is entirely on the basis of the shed blood of the Lamb. It's application to unholy and stained lives. Those who humble themselves and come to the cross of Christ. Now I'm convinced of one thing, although people say many different things. I think it's pride. That keeps us away from really being sold out to Christ. I mean, what am I so afraid of anyway? Truly, what am I afraid of? Nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. He has given us this book of revelation. Tell me what's going to happen. Jesus has told me, Tim, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. What is stopping me? What's stopping you? And because they have their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb, look at verse 15. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, 
and they serve him day and night in his temple or his sanctuary. Day and night means unceasingly, without pause. And it's not the ritual of the liturgical priest. They, one priest, high priest, doesn't go in there before God and make a sacrifice. No, no, no. It's spiritual worship and adoration and praise. What's supposed to be happening when we just had our praise and worship time here just a few minutes ago? He who sits on the throne, verse 15, will spread his tabernacle over them. Evokes the memories of the tabernacle they had when they went throughout the wilderness. The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that would lead them day and night. The immediate presence of God will shelter and protect them. It indicates acceptance, possession, and safety. God saying, you're mine. You belong to me. And I will protect you. And I will take care of you. <laughs> Look what it says in verse 16. Oh man, this is getting good right here. They, they will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore. Did you hear that? Nor will the sun beat down on them or strike them, nor any heat. And that's meaningful in an ancient land where there are constant threats. The sun and a lack of fresh water. Always on a mind if someone lives out in the desert. But how about here in Texas? It's been hot. I've been thirsty. But on that day, I won't thirst anymore. I won't hunger no more. The sun will not touch me no more. No more scorching heat. I mean, to imagine never being thirsty again, that would be heaven itself. Yet the promise goes beyond the physical. It points to the ultimate satisfaction of the soul's deepest longing. Go back to Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, specifically verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And the difficulties encountered on earth will never be experienced again. No hunger, no thirsting, no experiencing the heat of the scorching sun, and will be sheltered from all discomfort by the presence of God himself. But it doesn't stop there, though, does it? Look at verse 17. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. The Lamb who shed his blood for them will be their shepherd. People refer to pastors as being a shepherd. No, I'm not the shepherd. I'm an under-shepherd. This is not my church, it's his church. This is not my message, it's his message. It's not my salvation, it's his salvation. John chapter 10, verses 11 and following, Jesus speaking, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand, is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Dearly beloved, he knows exactly what's going on in your life right now. He's not leaving you. He's concerned about everything in your life. He's concerned about you, your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, your friends. He laid down his life for the entire world. 
knowing full well that not everybody would come to him, but he did it willingly. And look at back in verse 17, it says, they will guide or lead them into the to springs of water of life or the living waters. Directs them to the fountains and the source of life, the immediate presence of God. Indicate his provision. Jesus will meet every need. Oh, and probably the best part of this entire passage at the end that gets quoted so many times. Look what it says, the last part of verse 17. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Now these are not tears of grief over a lost or wasted life. I would say they're tears of joy. Have you ever been so overcome with comfort and excitement that you started crying, but you weren't crying because you're sad. You're crying because you're overjoyed. You could, you could not believe what was happening. The emphasis being made here on the comfort that's coming from the Lamb Himself by providing all that is needed through both provision and solace, providing what was, last, what was lacking in the midst of the great tribulation. Can you see that crowd? Can you see them? Can you imagine what it'd be like? Now, one thing is clear. According to Scripture, we will all have tribulation. All the godly in Christ will suffer. Isn't that what Christ said? If they persecute me, they will what? Persecute you. We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus, during his earthly life, did absolutely nothing wrong and constantly did miracles and things for other people. And yet they crucified him. If they crucified my Lord and Master, why should I expect anything different from the world who does not understand? However, the time we're experiencing here passes very quickly. It's temporal. And the older I get, the faster it goes. Think about it. Your life here, it's just, it's just you're here and you're gone. James chapter 4 verse 14 puts it this way. He, he, in prior uh, verse, he's talking about you're planning to do this and that tomorrow. And in verse 14 of James 4, he says this, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. On earth, we labor in difficulty, but in heaven, we will rejoice with the good shepherd. When you and I stand before the throne of God, with the living creatures, the elders and their angels surrounding us, rejoicing and praising God for what he has done, what a glorious crowd beyond anything you and I can imagine. The promise here is that all the saints will stand before him wearing right robes, waving palm branches in celebration of victory and deliverance. Are you going to be part of that glorious crowd? Do you know for sure? One thing is clear. 
those who sacrifice everything and compromise their ethics to walk in the corridors of power in Washington, D.C., or the walking corridors of power in corporate headquarters, must consider the following passage. And I ask you all, you've heard this so many times, but consider this and reflect upon this. Mark chapter 8, verses 36 and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Hmm. So let me be very clear. Call this invitation because you're going to be invited to respond to the proclamation of God's good news. Are you a Christian? Do you know how shadowed out? Have you given your life to Christ? If you are, what's holding you back? Christian life is never supposed to be static. It's supposed to be constantly changing, learning, becoming more and more like Christ every hour, every day, every week, every month, every year. You see, in church life, especially us pastors, we like to indicate church growth by how many people show up. But you know how you really measure church growth? How much more does this church look like Christ today than it did yesterday? How much more does this church look like Christ than it did a year from then? That's how you measure spiritual growth. God still calls people in ministry. I hope you realize that, right? Calls people to teach. Calls people to, to be prayer warriors. We have some in our midst. Calls people to be missionaries. He's not going to tell you everything up front. God's more interested to see if we really trust him. That's what it comes down to, isn't it? Do you trust me? How much more does God have to do before we can just fully let go and trust him with everything? I'm talking to myself, too, because you know what? The, the things in my life that I'm experiencing uh, trouble, even conviction with, are those things I still want to hold on to. God's telling me to let go. Trust me. Most of you know this already. The hardest thing for me is letting go of my girls. See, even say my girls, not really my girls. Trusting God with that. Trusting God with every point of my life. What are you holding on to? Won't you let go? Because I'm telling you right now, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you feel it, that voice going off in your head and your heart, that's God saying, let go of that and give it to me. I'm going to end with this. You've heard this many, many times. The most basic definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And God is telling us, as individuals in this group, how much longer you keep doing things over and over the same thing and expect different results. When are you going to let go and come after me? Seek me. You seek God. He will make himself known. But here's the rub. You have to let all your preconceived notions and ideas out the door. 
look to Scripture and Scripture alone and seek Him. You want to experience the God who split the Red Sea? You want to experience God who spoke to Moses on the mountain? You want to experience the God who did all those miracles? Mm. You want to experience the God that came to earth, born in a manger, walked among us, laid his life down, died a horrific death. But then on that third day, he come busting out. Perhaps that's what you need. Some resurrection. Some revival. Let's pray. And as individuals and as a church, let us pray that God would restore that. That revival in our spirit. You know what's going on out there. I'd say nothing what's going on in in our country and in the world. A lot of chaos. A lot of hate. A lot of confusion. But we are called to speak truth in love to that there. It doesn't matter what they do with it. You know, I want people to come to Christ, but He doesn't judge you or hold you accountable for what they do with it. We are told to go forth and be honest and love them. That's all He tells us to do. And Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done himself. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We we thank you that we can come into your throne room. And know that you hear us. Father, we know you love us more passionately and more intimately and deeply than we can ever possibly imagine. Father, restore the joy of our salvation to us as individuals and as a church. Remind us of who we are and who we belong to. Remind us of what awaits us. Grant us the the wisdom and the boldness and the courage to go forth and to be your witnesses every day. And when people look at us, may they not see us, but may they see you working in and through us. Father, I pray for every family that's represented here today. I pray for all the individuals within the sound of my voice. God, would you pull them close to your side. Spread your tabernacle over them. Let them know that you're here. You care. Father, may we not leave this place until we spend time with you. We love you. We adore you. We can never repay you for what you have done, what you currently are doing, 
and what you promise to do in the future. We just offer our lives to you so you may use us as you will to be your witnesses to a lost and dying world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?